Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 12, pages 881 through 893, and Reprise. So, uh, welcome to this uh, last class of the Grundrisse series, and uh, happy uh, Cinco de Mayo. Uh, it also happens to be uh, Karl Marx's birthday, who would be 202 years old uh, today. And we're still trying to figure out what he really meant with all this stuff that he wrote when he was 40 years old. Um, now, the Grundrisser, as you obviously know by now, is a text which is a bit all over the place. And as somebody kind of commented in papers that I received or comments I received. It's, it's full of uh, jewel-like insights, uh, sometimes buried in quite a bit of uh, conceptual mud. Uh, and uh, it takes a little uh, hard work to dig it out. I think there's absolutely no way you could say that there's a, a single definitive uh, interpretation of this text. Uh, and I think uh, it's a, a, a sort of a, a huge kind of uh, inventory of different ideas and possibilities uh, pointing in very often quite contradictory and, uh, and, and sometimes uh, uh, antagonistic uh, directions. Uh, the contradictions shouldn't bother us because Marx is very fond of them and start, likes to generate them. Uh, even when the case for them being there is not very strong, he'll, he'll find them. Uh, and uh, some of them are, are striking in their insult, in, insights. And I think that uh, that's the sort of thing that we would want to get out of it. Now, um, I had asked people to, over the, the last few weeks to sort of send me some commentaries, and I, I've got a whole sheaf of uh, commentaries here. I, I can't answer uh, all of them individually, but there are a number of themes which are common to the commentaries, which I think I want to take up. But I also want to make my own commentary, uh, because uh, this happens with with uh, Marx's texts. Whenever I teach uh, a text, I find some different angle and some different way of thinking about it. Uh, and that, in some ways, is a testimony to the richness of uh, Marx's uh, imagination. And so uh, I, I don't know how many times I've taught the Grundrisse. Certainly, it'd be more than a dozen times over you know the last 40 or 50 years. Um, but uh, each time I would maybe come out with something that's uh, rather different, and I think I've come up with some particular angles on it this time that I hadn't em emphasized before. I'd seen them, but not emphasized them, but now I, I think I would want to emphasize them. So I want to, if you like, uh, write my own final paper uh, to this uh, course with uh, trying to pull together some of the, the threads. 
that strike me as uh, significant uh, and uh, important about the, the text uh, as a whole. Now, from the very beginning, uh, I was emphasizing that uh, this uh, background to this text is a concept of the totality. And I want to go back and start again, as it were, with the concept of the totality, because it informs a lot of what it is that uh, I would want to say uh, about what is going on here. And there are uh, three uh, particular passages I would draw your attention to. Uh, one is in the introduction, which is, in a, in a way, Marx addressing the formal structures of classical political economy that dwell on the theme of uh, production, consumption, distribution, exchange. Uh, and, uh, and, but they uh, approach it in a kind of a, almost a Newtonian way of disaggregating the elements into uh, specific uh, forces, which uh, then collide and create all kinds of uh, shifts. But uh, in that collision, there are some uh, elements which are stronger than others. And of course, production uh, tends, to, tends to dominate. But Marx kind of says, well, yes, but, and then does all kinds of things. And, and, but he's measuring, in a sense, that whole classical political economic structure of thought against the background of this idea of a totality. Uh, and uh, on page 99, he reaches his conclusion, which is that it is not that production, distribution, exchange, and consumption are identical, but that they all form the members of a totality, distinctions within a unity. Production predominates not only over itself, in the antithetical definition of production, and by that Marx is referring to the fact that Production is about two things. One is about the material production of a commodity, uh, but it's also about the production of value. So that uh, it, the question is, you know, well, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the physical process or are we looking at value, uh, which is the, the, the non-physical but social relation part uh, of the process? So production predominates not only over itself in the antithetical definition of production, but over the other moments as well. The process always returns to production to begin anew. That exchange and consumption cannot be predominant is self-evident. Likewise, distribution is distribution of products, while as distribution of the agents of production, it is itself a moment of production. A definite production thus determines a definite consumption, distribution, and exchange, as well as definite, definite relations between these different moments. Admittedly, however, in its one-sided form, production is itself determined by the other moments. For example, if the market, i.e. the sphere of exchange, expands, then production grows in quantity, and the divisions between its different branches become deeper. A change in distribution changes production, e.g. concentration of capital, different distribution of the population between town and country, etc. Finally, the needs of consumption determine production. Mutual interaction takes place between the different moments. This is the case with every organic whole. So Marx is here spelling out the organic whole. Now, this organic whole is something that Marx is conceptually building. 
but his historical materialist method says that you just don't build it out of ideas and you just don't build it out of, you know, thinking. You build it by a study of the actual processes which bring that totality into being. So we don't start with the idea that there is a totality and we go out there and we discover it. What we do, we start with the idea that a totality has emerged through certain particular processes and we have to look at those historical materialist processes in order to understand uh, how the totality comes to be and, and, and not only that, but what some of the qualities of this totality are about. And this is, I think, very well sort of put out if you go to hunt pages 196 uh, to 7, where Marx starts to sort of talk more about how this whole kind of totality of capital uh, began to form. Uh, and he, he, he writes this at the bottom 196, and this is somewhat uh, a longish quote, but I think you need to listen to it and study it carefully. Circulation, he says, is the movement in which the general alienation appears as general appropriation and general appropriation is general alienation. We'll leave that to a side for the moment. As much then as the whole of this movement appears as a social process, and as much as the individual moments of this movement arise from the conscious will and particular purposes of individuals, so much does the totality of the process appear as an objective interrelation which arises spontaneously from nature. Arising, it is true, from the mutual influence of conscious individuals on one another, but neither located in their consciousness nor subsumed under them as a whole. Their own collisions, that is the collisions of all the individuals engaging on these practices, their own collisions with one another, produce an alien social power standing above them, produce their mutual interaction as a process and a power independent of them. Circulation, because a totality of the social process, is also the first form in which the social relation appears as something independent of the individuals but not only as, say, in a coin or in exchange value, but extending to the whole of the social movement itself. The social relation of individuals to one another as a power over the individuals which has become autonomous, whether conceived as a natural force, as chance or in whatever other form, is a necessary result of the fact that the point of departure is not the free social individual. Circulation as the first totality among the economic categories, is well suited to bring this to light. So here is Marx saying that the circulation process, which goes on in markets and through production and all the rest of it, that that process is something which is constructed out of the interactions between many, many individuals coming together and often colliding uh, in the end uh, to produce a totality which no one of those individuals can control and no one of those individuals consciously uh, decided to construct. In other words, this is a social construct that arises out of individual behaviors, but it's a social construct that nobody necessarily had in mind as they engaged in those behaviors. And Marx is spelling this out and then saying that so the circulation of capital, uh, which we're looking at, is a, is a process which uh, is constructed 
uh, by this history. And this history is, of course, the history of the emergence of market exchange, monetization, and, and all the rest of it, which you, you end up studying uh, in here. But you see what Marx is saying about the totality in this case, that the totality has been formed historically and the totality has qualities, and in particular value theory and all of that, which are very particular qualities, uh, which have been constructed without anybody's uh, being in charge. This is actually a little, little like, in some ways, what Adam Smith does when he, he talks about the hidden hand of the market. That the hidden hand of the market emerges out of market processes, and the hidden hand guides uh, as it were, but Marx is kind of saying it doesn't necessarily guide in a benevolent way uh, as, as uh, Smith uh, proposed. So this is the second passage where the notion of the totality is set out. The third passage is on page 278, where Marx again talks about this uh, totality, but talks about it from this standpoint of the history. He says, while in the completed bourgeois system, every economic relation presupposes every other in its bourgeois economic form, and everything posited is thus also a presupposition. This is the case with every organic system. This organic system itself, as a totality, has its presuppositions, and its development to its totality, notice it's, Marx is talking about the development of this totality, the development of its totality consists precisely in subordinating all elements of society to itself or in creating out of it the organs which it still lacks. This is historically how it becomes a totality. The process of becoming this totality forms a moment of its process, of its development. And then Marx goes on to talk about the territoriality of this, that this Construction of a totality is likely to be territorially bounded uh, as it expands, so it's likely to invade uh, territories. And so he talks a bit about what I call the spatial fix. But what you see here is that there's a totality is in formation and it has formed. And part of the history that goes on in the Grundrisse is an attempt to uh, familiarize us with the processes by which this totality uh, is uh, set up. Now, how do we represent this uh, totality and what, what, do, what are its qualities? Well, one of the things that I started out the class with was this uh, diagram, uh, which uh, you have all at uh, some point or other uh, seen, and I gave you all a copy of it. But the point about this diagram is that this is the circulation process that Marx talks about when he kind of says circulation is the first form where we can identify the nature of this totality. And this totality has these different moments within it, that it is a totality of circulation, which is going on, but there are distinctive moments within the totality, and the moments are tied together by particular interactions. And the first moment is the, the, the money capital, which is taking of money and converting some of the money which exists in society into capital, which is money being used to make more money. And it's going to be make more money by a very specific trajectory. And its trajectory is to take the money into the marketplace and to buy commodities in the market. And the commodities are of two types. One is means of production, and the other 
is labor power. And means of production and labor power are then brought together in a production process. And the production process produces commodities, but also produces value, value which is going to relate to the value which existed in monetary form at the very base of this. So this is, if you like, the first major step is the step of production where labor is going to produce value at the same time as it's going to produce value congealed in very specific commodities. And those commodities are then taken into the marketplace and they're realized in monetary form by a sale. So this sale become, point becomes very, uh, very important and I'll, I'll come back to it in, in, in a minute. Uh, once the, 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 the value is monetized and we then have this question, why would you start out with a certain amount of money and end up with the same amount of money at the end of this? Marx's answer to that is nobody's going to do it for that reason. They're going to do it so they can get more money. So somehow or other, more money has to end up in this realization moment that existed at that, the inception moment of money capital. And that more money is arising out of the fact that during this production process, surplus value was created. That is, more value was created than uh, went in. And that more value being created is what uh, labor contributes to this process. So that the realization of uh, value is going to realize not only the original value and replicate that, but it's also going to realize a surplus value in monetary form. And that surplus value in monetary form is what we refer to as profit. So the profit incentive joins this point of the circuit with that. Once everything is monetized, then the money is distributed across various people who, various groups in the society who have claims upon it. Uh, one of the claims is, of course, the laborers who will claim wages. So we will find wages uh, being claimed out of it. Some of it will be taken by the state as taxes. Some of it will, will go as, as uh, profit uh, to the industrialist, the person who's in, engaged in this process of production. Some of it will go to the merchant, because merchants are very often deployed in helping to sell the commodities, that is, taking the commodity from the point of production into the market and selling it. Uh, some of it will go as rent, because all of this is taking place against the background of, of land ownership, and that therefore landowners are going to claim a piece uh, of the surplus by virtue of saying, you use my land, you go across my land, uh, you're going to have to pay, in effect, a tax called rent in order to get access to that land. And some of it will be paid as interest to financiers. So the, the, the money here will be distributed. Then part of that distribution ends up being, if you like, the, uh, the demand for, 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 for goods. And part of it comes back in terms of reinvestment and this is, this is the circuit of capital. And this is the circulation process. This is the totality that Marx is uh, uh, describing. And there are certain elements in this totality that are, uh, I think, uh, important to, 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 to look at. Uh, to begin with, there is the question of, uh, well, how, how, do we, how do we understand uh, the productivity of this whole kind of system? Now, it is the case in any totality that there's going to be different moments in it of this sort. So we have here the moment of, of production, the moment of realization, the moment of distribution, and the moment of reinvestment. 
So these are key moments in this kind of in this kind of process, and we then can start to talk about it as uh, later on by saying, well, because you're getting more at the this point at the top, and the realization, this is not really a circle; it's really uh, a spiral. Now, when we look at this process, uh, there are a number of things that can be can be said about it. It's, it, it of course, this is a a highly simplified version of what Marx is talking about, but nevertheless, it tells you, I think, rather a lot uh, about what he is doing in the Grundrisse, because he's looking at very different aspects of this uh, of this system uh, in the Grundrisse. Now, for me, uh, there are a couple of issues which crop up uh, immediately, and a couple of people in the uh, in writing kind of commentaries, uh, mentioned uh, the fact that uh, uh, I, I'm often depicted as somebody who thinks that value can arise in in circulation uh, against those uh, like Michael Roberts and so on, who uh, insist that the only place that where value can be created is in is in production. Now. Uh, I like Michael Roberts very much. He has a wonderful blog. You should check it out. It's full of information and the like. But Michael has this kind of view that uh, the, the, the key point in this whole circulation process is production. And in the same way that Marx, in his depiction of the totality, kind of says production dominates, but then he turns around and says, well, but actually distribution also plays a role and everything else comes back. So when, in a totality, everything relates to everything else. So it's very difficult to say that, that uh, somehow or other one, only one aspect of this process works. Um, I, my point is, is, is very much this, and, it, it, and of course it was, it was spelled out in Marx's uh, initial description, which is, which is to say, uh, yes, it's, I always take the position and I can uh, actually let me read some quotations to you from different different pages where Marx deals with this whole kind of question of what is the relationship within this totality between production and realization. And Marx in some ways has signaled what the relation is, is going to be uh, early on when in that first uh, uh, thing that I, that I read to you, uh, when, when he says, uh, A definite production thus determines a definite consumption, distribution and exchange, as well as definite relations between these different moments. Admittedly, however, in its one-sided form, production is itself determined by the other moments. For example, if the market, i.e. the sphere of exchange, expands, then production grows in quantity and the divisions between its different branches become deeper. A change in distribution changes production. So Marx does not actually say in this conception of the totality that, that, that nothing that goes on here at the point of realization is relevant. In fact, there's a lot that is extremely relevant. And what Marx does in the Grundrisse is spend quite a bit of time talking about what he calls the contradictory unity of production and realization. And on page 543, he summarizes this argument very crisply in the following way, when he says, the circulation of capital realizes value 
while living labor creates value. Now, what's more important, the creation of value or the realization of value? Marx kind of answers, well, if you can't realize the value, it's no value. So actually, they're co-dependent upon each other. And there actually exists in a situation, as he says, of contradictory unity. He says, this is page 415, the contradiction between production and realization, of which capital by its concept is the unity, has to be grasped. That is, okay, so there's a contradictory unity between production and realization. Uh, and that that contradictory unity exists because that is how they exist within the totality of this circulation process, which we're looking at. And if I go back to page 4047, he says this, in the production process itself, where capital continued to be presupposed as value, its realization appeared totally dependent on the relation of capital to wage labor. Okay, so within that production process, it's the relationship to wage labor, which is critical. That's where value is going to be produced. But now, he says, as a product, as a commodity, it appears dependent upon circulation, which lies outside this labor process, that is, the realization moment. As a commodity, it must be, one, a use value, and as such, an object of need, object of consumption. It must be exchanged for its equivalent in money. The new value can be realized only through sale. Thus, he says, by emerging from the production process and re-entering circulation, capital A appears to encounter a barrier in the available magnitude of consumption, of consumption capacity. So my argument has always been that, yes, all value is created in, produ in production, but if it cannot be realized, it is not value. And Marx says that here very clearly. He also says it in volume one of Capital. So if there is a barrier in realization, if uh, commodities have been produced which don't meet a human need, which nobody wants or nobody can afford, then it's, no, it's not value. <clears throat> but that's the point of the totality. The totality is, has to operate in such a way that whatever it is that is the flow that moving in this circulatory process, whatever's there is going to be sustained and it must go through each one of these moments and it must go through the moment of money, it must go through the buying, and sell, uh, buying of commodities, it must go through the moment of production, it must go through the moment of realization, and it must go through the moment of distribution, it must go through the moment of reinvestment and come back in. But if it can't get through any of those moments, then uh, the system is screwed. So this is, this is, it seems to me, what the point of the totality, of the totality. So when Michael Roberts kind of says, I actually place more emphasis upon the moment of realization and consumption, the answer is yes, I do, because I think there are serious barriers there, which is why in this diagram, I put uh, up here near realization, the whole kind of question of wants, needs, and desires, and how capital manages wants, needs, and desires. And this is historically very important, and if it can't manage wants, needs, and desires adequately, then there's going to be a blockage at the point of realization. And it's not only management of wants, needs, and desires, but there has to be effective demand, that is, wants, needs, and desires backed by ability to pay. Now, if there is a blockage 
at the point of realization, because there's not enough money to pay and there's no want, need, and desire, uh, then uh, the release of that blockage will actually then release production, which was going to be dead value because there was no market for it, and it's going to animate that and reanimate it so that the value which is created there can be realized. So it is that relationship between production and realization which is critical to me. Now, in volume one of Capital, what Marx did was to say, okay, I'm going to write an analysis of how capital works under a certain assumptions. And one of the assumptions was that there would be absolutely no problem of selling the product. All commodities, he said, trade at their value. All commodities can go to market and there's no blockage in, in, in realization. So his analysis in volume one of Capital discounts entirely the whole kind of question of realization. Similarly, what he does in volume one of Capital is to discount the idea that what happens in the field of distribution has anything to do with what happens. So he says, basically, I think everything that goes on in, in the field of distribution works out fine. Uh, there's no need to go into it. I'm simply going to look at uh, this first part of the, of, the, uh, of the circulation process, which is in effect takes you from the initial money up to the profit. So this is, this is a, key, a, key, a key point. But my argument would be that that's, an, that's okay to do that as an assumption, but that's not a realistic economy. A realistic economy is a lot of time having to deal with the kind of question of the organization of consumption, organization and orchestration of consumption capacity. And if you can't do that, you get devaluation and you get loss of value. So... I'm perfectly happy, and, and, and I never, ever say that value can be created through the activities of market exchange. I never say that. Yeah, value is always created in production, but pr creation is not the only thing you have to think about. You also have to think about realization. You also have to think about distribution and how the distribution works. Uh, and that is not the topic that Marx deals with in volume one of Capital. Those are topics he deals with in volume two to some degree and volume three of Capital. But then you get a different story coming out. So this is, if you like, one of the, one of the features uh, of this circulation process, which I think is very important. And Marx takes up this whole kind of question, the relationship between production and realization, uh, and is being very explicit uh, about uh, how, how, how we should be, be thinking uh, of that. Now, there are many other aspects in the Grundrisse of this sort, which Marx takes up, uh, which uh, sometimes in a rather shallow way, but I think in, uh, in an important way. You will notice if you look at this diagram that there's something over here called social reproduction, which is about the reproduction of labor power. Uh, and the reproduction of labor power is obviously a, a very important moment. And it actually has its own circulation process. And Marx calls this, on page 673 to 78, he calls this the small circulation. I don't know why he calls it small, but it, it, that's what he calls it. And the small circulation is the laborer going from their place of residence to the workplace. They get to the workplace, and what do they do? They go into the workplace, and they offer up their labor power, which the capitalist uses for a day. And at the end of the day, uh, the worker gets a wage, and the wage uh, then uh, is, is given to the worker. 
And the workers then take that wage and come back into here and use that wage to buy commodities, which they take back to the place of residence and they cook them and live with them and all the rest of it. So there is a circulation process here, which is a, a sort of mini circulation process within this macro system. And that mini circulation process is distinctive and it has distinctive qualities. And I suddenly kind of started to think about this. Actually, the whole structure of the Grundrisse, in some ways, is a, is a detailed investigation and essay on different circulatory structures within this totality. In other words, this totality, I, I've done this map of it, and I'm very happy with it, and I hope you are too, because it, it does help uh, signify uh, some of what's happening but there's a lot of things that go on which are which are way beyond this to begin with i mentioned that this is not in practice a circulation process it's a spiral process and that therefore it's constantly growing with all kinds of consequences uh, which which i'm not going to get into here but you know we've just been talking about that very very frequently so this is a, an important uh, one important aspect it's a spiral but then it, it turns out that there are many different mini circulation processes within this totality. And they are all interrelated with each other, but sometimes antagonistic to each other. And I think that it's therefore important to unpack what they're about. Now, here I'm going to use an analogy, which is dangerous, because when you take this analogy and you really take it very far, you take it to its, to its ultimate end, you get some profoundly misleading ideas. But as a starting point, it's a very useful analogy. How many systems exist inside of a human body? Well, okay, you have the circulation of the blood, right? And the heart is critical for the circulation of the blood. You have the input of oxygen as part of the fuel system. And lungs are very important. Okay. Uh, you have uh, a digestive tract and you have stomachs and you have kidneys and you have liver and you have circulatory systems of that, of that sort. You have a neural system which uh, is uh, sending messages all over the place and coordinating things. So a human body then has many different systems and those different systems actually have very specific and different qualities. And so and, and within medicine, you get these specialities. You know, you have a urologist and you have a, a cardiologist and a pulmonary specialist and, and, and all, 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 all the rest of it. So you've got these different circulatory systems inside of the human body. And the human body depends upon all of those systems working in a way which is consistent and coordinated with each other. And it's not as if the heart dictates to the lungs or anything of that kind. No, the heart has to do its business. And if the heart stops, you're dead. But also if the lungs stop, you're dead. And also, you know, if your liver stops, you're dead. And if your brain stops, you're dead, you know. So, uh, so, so you can't say that somehow or other one element here is more important than all of the others. And I feel about this system that I'm lo we're looking at here, that I feel the same thing about it. I think all of these elements, which, which can be defined here, moments of distribution, moments of realization, all the rest of it, uh, that th th they all ha have, have, have a meaning. 
Now, one of the problems I, I, I have here is because this automatically will mean that the nature of a crisis is very, very, very significant. But where does the crisis locate it? Well, you know, if you go into a hospital and you've got a pain in the stomach and somebody says, well, you know, it's really a problem with your heart and they start messing around with your heart, that's not going to really do you much good. And I feel that with a lot of Marxist analysis of crises, that people have a very one, there's only one idea about crisis, which is the falling rate of profit or something like that. And there, are, there are other versions of the falling rate of profit is it. Uh, and everything is dependent upon the falling rate of profit. So you have a crisis like in 2007, 2008 in housing markets and all the rest of it, and, you know, and which issues of consumption and consumerism and others are all involved. But no, 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 we have to reinterpret it in terms of the how, falling rate of, of, of profit. I would like to suggest that any theory of crisis of this system, and this is the point of seeing it as a totality, you can find the location of, a, of crisis uh, within this, the dynamic of this system and point to a point of origin. But you know perfectly well that if, you inter if, if, you know, if one part fails, then the whole system can be stopped. Or if one part is in trouble, there's going to be a lot of trouble elsewhere within the system. So the point of having an analysis of the totality is precisely to be able to start to think about uh, the way in which uh, a problem in one area will go into another. Now, how does this relate uh, to the way in which Marx structures his investigations uh, in the Grundrisse. Interestingly, uh, all of that stuff from the beginning about money, Marx kind of is arguing with the Proudhonists and he's getting into all kinds of things about, you know, can you change what's going on in this monetary field in such a way as to somehow or other change the dynamic of the system? And the answer is uh, no, but as he gets towards the end of the monetary section, he starts to say, well, actually, the circulation of money is a really critical feature of any capitalist system. And therefore, we have to really look very carefully uh, at the nature of the circulation process and the, what the circulation process is doing. Well, it's partly circulating commodities, and so he spends a lot of time talking about them. the circulatory form of money in relationship to commodity exchange. Uh, money also does something else, which is by setting up a price structure, it allows information to be important. So the information function becomes important. So the price side of it becomes very uh, significant. But if we're just interested in prices and we're just interested in circulation of, uh, uh, of commodities, as he points out, anything would do. You know, you wouldn't care about, you know, money at all. Uh, because fake money, he says, is just as good for any of those functions as anything else. And then he kind of says, well, but actually uh, uh, money is also a store of wealth. And when it starts to become, function as a store of wealth, uh, it becomes important. And then, of course, you get the final thing of money, which is used as capital. Okay. Now, money, which is used as capital, changes the whole dynamic of what is going on. Money, which is being used as capital, uh, is uh, a, a, radically, a radical departure uh, in the circulation of money. So out of the circulation of money in general comes a very specific form of circulation, which is the circulation of money as money capital. And money capital is going to work in such a way as to create more money capital. So that then means that capital itself takes on money 
and takes on value. Now, here we have something which is important also, which I've been evading up until now, which is what is this thing called value? Capital, Marx says, is value in motion. What is value? Value is not material. Value is immaterial. And Marx is not a natural history materialist, he's a historical materialist, and he deals with immaterial elements. So many of Marx's basic categories are in fact immaterial. Money is, uh, and value is immaterial. It has a material representation. Money is the material representation of value. Value is something that circulates, and it is a social relation. But it circulates in such a way as to reproduce itself, and it's reproducing the capital relation. And it is capitalists who circulate the money in such a way as to, re, as to actually, in a recurrent way, rebuild the basis of their own reproduction. So value is something which is connected to the reproduction of the class relation between capital and labor and the reproduction of the capitalist class. So again, this is a circulation process which has a particular objective and changes its meaning when its objective changes. So money, when it's just circulating commodities, and there's no accumulation going on, but money, when it becomes capital, is about accumulation, and it's about the reproduction of the capitalist class and the capitalist class power, and it comes uh, along with a certain definition of wealth. Now, several people raise the kind of question, what is wealth? Well, the answer there is that, you know, it's not Marx giving an answer, he's giving us an answer saying what capital defines as wealth is money power and command over assets, and, and, and that's it. And when later on he kind of says, you know, wouldn't, we, wouldn't it be better to think of uh, wealth as being disposable time? He's kind of saying, look, the, the, the capitalists have a definition of wealth, uh, and it's not a, a good definition of wealth, and it's not a conducive one to lots of free time and, 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 and the like. So, so, so Marx is kind of, kind of saying, that, 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 that the definition of wealth in a capitalist society changes from the way in which wealth might have been set up or understood uh, back in sort of feudal times. And, and then this then leads to the, you know, Marx talking in, 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 in very sort of direct ways about the production of wealth and how the capitalist class is about self-reproduction by the, the reproduction of value through production. And yes, it is through production, but it has to command also all the moments of realization. So that it has to uh, play this uh, very important role of uh, uh, set, setting up wants, needs, and desires. Uh, so that in order to re so so when you kind of say, how does it have to orchestrate all of these different moments within the system so that it works in such a way that they come out of it? better off at the end of the day than they, they were at the beginning of the day and they, they, uh, they preserve their own capitalist class power, that is a circulation process of a very, very distinctive uh, sort. And, and that is, is what, you know, is, comes out of the circulation of money. So the analysis of the circulation of money, I think you know, Marx has set up, is a very interesting, is a very, is a very interesting uh, uh, point. And when he kind of says, the monetary side of things is the first form of circulation which we have to look at. Uh, he's talking about, you know, okay, how does this happen historically? And of course, there's a lot of stuff historically about how money 
destroyed the community by creating the community. And, and, and of course, it destroyed certain ideas about wealth uh, by creating new ones. So the question of what is wealth is, okay, not for Marx a question of what he would like it to be or what you or I like it to be. It's really a question of what, what it is that the capitalist society is going to define as wealth. And we know uh, very much what that is. And when we kind of say, okay, there's a different way in which we can talk about wealth and well-being and all this kind of thing, uh, we get a, a rather uh, nasty jolt. For instance, uh, uh, the World Bank at a certain point decided that these World Bank uh, annual reports on the state of the economy, which is all about you know GDP and flows and all the rest of it, was not really adequate. So in the 1990s, they had a whole kind of thing where they started to talk about the UN Development Report instead of the World Bank Report. And the Development Report looked at all kinds of social measures, uh, you know, suicides and infant mortality and happiness indexes and things of that kind. And so for a few years, they produced a Development Report. And of course, what happened? Guess what? The United States didn't come out number one on the Development Report. And, and since the, uh, you know, the United States owns the World Bank, at a certain point they discontinued doing the development reports because it didn't shed a good light on what the United States was doing. And it was seen as an anti-US uh, kind of plot by uh, the rest of the world to sort of come up with a development indices that uh, should, you know, didn't, didn't look good from the standpoint of uh, the United States. Now, so... This is, this is, if you like, now, actually what Marx does in the Grundrisse is to, is to talk about different circulation processes. And the first one is the monetary circulation, which he deals with at length and then says the monetary circulation gets organized in a certain way within this totality to perform a certain function, which is what he calls the MCM function, that is money being used to buy commodities to make money, which more money, so MCM, as opposed to a CMC, which is commodities used, which use, where people use money to just change commodities, in which case you don't have to have an increment in that because you get an exchange of use values. So CMC is a very different circulatory process than MCM. Now, Marx then looks at this small circulation that I've talked about, which is what kind of circulation process is the working class in. They're in a different working, in a different circuit. They are in a CMC circuit. They start with a commodity, labor power. They get money for it, and then they, they use that money to buy things in order to reproduce themselves and in such a way as to come back into the workforce next morning. So they're in a CMC circuit. Now, CMC circuit, it, the logic of it is an exchange of use values. I have a use value, I can labor but I can't eat my labor. I need, I need food. So I give you my labor and then you give me the money and I will go get my food. And so, that, so the bargain that the wage laborer has, which is embedded in this, in this process that we've talked about, there's a circulation process, which is about uh, the reproduction of labor power. And uh, Marx mentions this, a small, circulation. And, and, and there are several passages where he talks about, well, actually, when the laborer gets round to, you know, with the wages, they're no longer a worker, they're simply a buyer. 
and they're going to approach uh, the whole kind of question of what happens in the world of realization. But they play an important role in realization. And there's a kind of comment that several people picked up on, kind of saying, you know, every capitalist represses the wages of their own workforce, but at the same time hopes that other capitalists will give big wages uh, to their workers so that they then form a market. So the whole kind of question of working class consumption, what is the value of labor power? Now, what are workers actually going to be concerned about within that circulation process? They're not accumulating anything by being in production. They're not actually, they don't have any incentive even to accumulate anything. Uh, what they do have is a great interest in their standard of living. That is, can they raise their wages in some way uh, so that they have more, so, so the whole kind of question of what the value of labor power is and what the value is of the commodities which they need to reproduce, that's, that becomes very significant. So there's this mini circuit within this overall circuit, which is a circuit of, a small circuit, which is the, the circuit of the reproduction of labor power. And it has a dual character. First off, the qualities of the labor power which are brought to market are very significant. And so, the, 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 if you like, this circuit touches upon the general circulation process at the point, of course, where they go in, the, the workers go into the labor process. It also touches at the point where the workers have the money and they start spending the money on, on, on goods and services. So, so there, the, that circulation process latches into the rest of the circulation processes. And so of course, working class consumption is a very, very big thing. And if working class consumption is cut down in some way, it does all, all kinds of hell in, uh, in, in, in uh, production. I mean, we see with this virus, working class consumption has been sort of cut because uh, we've got mass unemployment. We've got, you know, what is it? 40 million uh, uh, unemployed or something of that kind, and, and they don't have the, the, the consumer capacity, there is a real realization problem. Uh, and, uh, or, you know, the airlines are not going to realize uh, any value because nobody's flying off on vacations to the Bahamas. Uh, uh, we've, we've got, you know, there's a, there's a blockage in, in this system right now, which has a lot to do with the fact that working class consumption is being cut. Uh, and, and, and that is meaning that the capacity of realization is being cut. So you have that. The centerpiece of, of what Gundries uh, are about is, of course, the relationship between fi fixed capital circulation and circulating capital. That is two different circulating processes. And we know that they relate to each other. I mean, fixed capital comes out of circulating capital and, and, and fixed capital supports circulating capital. But then circulating capital, uh, if fixed capital is going to get, re retire its value, is going to have to uh, attach a lot of circulating capital. I mean, if you build an airport and, and there's no, no flights coming, then, 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 then it's dead capital, it's devalued capital in the, in, in the circuit. Now, the reason why the, the fixed capital and the circulating capital becomes so significant is because we're dealing there with long-term investment in the built environment and we're dealing with the, re the reproduction of, labor, of, of uh, you know, 
the built environment, and we're dealing with all of those, all of those uh, kind, kinds of things. And it's a different circulatory process. It has different rules of engagement. And, and therefore, uh, a bit like the human body has these different uh, circulatory systems. So, so the totality has circulating capital. It has fixed capital. It has the small capital. It has the monetary circulation. And it also marks hints. It doesn't go into it in very great detail. There are other circulatory processes which are here. For example, there is interest-bearing capital. And Marx is very clear that interest-bearing capital has its own rules of circulating. And, and of course, there, the social relation, which is crucial, is between debtors and, 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 uh, and creditors, uh, which is not the same as the class relation between capital and labor. And even the laborer, when they're in the market, is in a, a, a buyer-seller relation. And so you get completely different structures of social relations within these different circuits. And these different circuits are all interlocked and moving together. And, of course, they compensate for each other. One of my arguments I've often made is that when there's an overproduction or real problems of realization of value in the circulating capital, one of the things capital does is to go off and build the, in the built environment. And, and a vast amount of money then is sort of siphoned off from the circulating circuit to uh, the fixed capital circuit, which, in effect, is how China got out of the Great Recession of 2007-2008 was by a massive flow of capital flowing into fixed capital formation and building new cities, building railroads, building dams, building high, you know, highways, building all kinds of things of this sort. So there was a huge uh, flow. So the relationship between these different circulation processes becomes very significant. But at the same time, what that means is that you can get crises emerging in any one of these circulatory processes, and any one of them, if it block, gets blocked or caught up or, or something in, in any kind of way, any one of them uh, can actually then throw a spanner in, in, in the total circulation process and force major, major adjustments. Uh, the whole reproduction of labor power is uh, a fraught kind of question. What kind of labor power do we want? This is an issue that raised up again and again. I mean, if fixed capital is doing what it's doing and it's actually turning most of the workforce into kind of, you know, just machine minders or uh, service workers as opposed, as opposed to actually making anything, if that is, if that, if that is the case, then, then, then what kind of process of social reproduction of labor power should there be? And how should the, the reproduction of labor power be constructed? And if most of these people are going to be unemployed, then how are you going to maintain the effective demand unless it's going to be by you know, universal basic income and things like that. And by the way, several people kind of suggested I might be think universal basic income is a good idea. My answer to that is it might be a short-term thing, uh, actually, right now. It might as an emergency measure, but in the long run, it will never work for the very simple reason uh, that if you change this, the, the purchasing power capacity of the working class and you don't control... Uh, prices of pharmaceutical products and all the rest of it, then you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, the working class are not going to improve their standard of living. In fact, they may get it even worse uh, because they've got a higher minimum wage or universal basic income or something of that kind. And by donating, as it were, universal basic income, uh, you also forego uh, what, what labor in itself might do if it all started to organize and take over the means of production. In other words, uh, this is a 
favorite trick of uh, socialist thinking about this circulation process, which is uh, you can deal with the distributional side of things. And by intervening with distribution, uh, you, can, you can somehow or other uh, solve the major problems of the system. I think the analysis of the system would teach you that you can't do that and, and, and that, that therefore, you know, Michael Roberts and everybody else is right when they kind of say, look, you're not going to go anywhere until you get hold of production. And, and to get hold of production means to actually get hold of the production of surplus value, which means to get hold of the production and reproduction of the capitalist class, which means actually the abolition of the class privilege of the capitalist class. And, and that is another, that's one of the reasons why nobody wants to go to this kind of realm of production is precisely because uh, that's what uh, is, is, is it entailed. But uh, one other point that Marx made when he, when he dealt with the circulation of interest-bearing capital, he said, you know, you like to think that maybe interest-bearing capital came out of nowhere. And of course, there's a long history of it, and debt, and credit and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but Marx kind of says, uh, actually, uh, one of the raison d'etre of the circulation of interest-bearing capital is the existence of fixed capital. And the financing of fixed capital formation is critically connected to financial institutions and financial services, and therefore the financial sector becomes absolutely uh, embedded. So look, we've got circulation of money, We've got the circulating capital, we've got the small circulation, uh, we've got the circulation of fixed capital, we've got the circulation of interest-bearing capital. We've got five different circulatory, circulatory systems within the totality. And that isn't the end of the story because there are more elements within this. Uh, for instance, what about merchant capital? Does merchant capital have its own kind of circuit? The answer is yes, it does. And so again, merchant capital becomes significant. And what we've seen actually over the last 20 or 30 years <clears throat> is a domination of, of a lot of merchant capital over production capital. Uh, the merchants uh, have, uh, if you like, what's sometimes called monopsony power because you know the textile factories and all the rest of it are making stuff and they get very low wages and, 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 and it's the Gap and all those other companies and, Benetton or whatever, who, who gets the benefit. And, and, and you look at Apple computers and so on, basically made in, in, in Shenzhen. But uh, the, the Apple, which is really a merchant capitalist with some other things going on, of course, in terms of design and, 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 and all the rest of it. Uh, so, so merchant capital has its own role to play. So, and then, of course, there's landed capital. Now, landed capital is a, is a thorn in the side of a lot of this. Uh, Marx actually at a certain point kind of said, well, you can treat the land as just a form of fixed capital. Well, you can't in the long run. I mean, for his purposes at that, at that moment of the analysis, it might be a reasonable thing to have done. But on the other hand, it's, there's no way that's going to wash for very long. Uh, but the kind of, kind of question of, to what degree is, is, is land, and it comes into the, the other question, which is to what degree does control over assets start to be significant, and what, what are the asset values and how are asset values being determined? Um, so there's a, there, there are all these different circuits. So what I would like to suggest to you is that the reading of the Grundrisse uh, should really anchor around 
uh, it as an ex exploration of these different uh, circulatory systems which exist within the totality. And in the same way that the circulatory systems in the human body uh, interact and interroll and, and interweave, uh, and, and at the same time provide us with an understanding of certain sites where certain things can go wrong. So what we see in, in this, so that 2007, 2008, was a crisis which began in housing markets. Now, what are housing markets? It's not fixed capital. Uh, well, it is in some respects, but basically it's what Marx calls a consumption fund, which is the parallel on the consumption side with fixed capital. That is the funding of the consumption fund. Uh, and the mortgage debt in the United States is, is, became huge. Now, in Marx's time, there was no such thing as mortgage debt. He didn't have to deal with it. But what we find is a form of circulation has grown and, and, and inserted, become inserted into uh, the totality in such a way as to actually, at some point, be a disruptive force and create a crisis. Now, I think this is, this, is, this is, so you look at that crisis and you say it's a crisis of that system, which has ramifications for, for everybody else. In, and, and so this then becomes a, a way of uh, stunning to, to create uh, analyses. Now, one, you know, I know I'm going on a bit, but I want to go on to just one last point, which is critical for the moment. The, one of the things that, that, that I had in this, this thing is, uh, something up here which is called free gifts of human nature and culture and production and, re and destruction of human nature and culture there's a whole kind of cultural background to this and here we, we have production reproduction and destruction of, of space and nature uh all right so well what i was what I've basically been saying uh, here is that um uh I think this is a very interesting way to start to try to understand an economy. And I, I read the Grundrisse this time as an essay on how, how to understand the economy from the standpoint of a totality with many different circulatory systems at work within it. And it's a very complicated kind of uh, question. Uh, but then, uh, you know, if you think about the, the analogy of the human body, the human body is pretty complicated, and, but we spend time trying to figure out what's going on. And I think the difference between Marx's analysis, which is pushing in this kind of way, and conventional economics is, I think, uh, very, very significant. Because I think this is a much richer way of, of, of pursuing it, it for a variety of uh, reasons. Uh, and I think that the whole kind of question of uh, the relation to nature uh, is taken up a bit in the Grundrisse. And I think that what we're in right now is not only a kind of a crisis of uh, uh, a cultural crisis, but we're in, we're in a whole series of crises uh, which are about the way in which the system is embedded uh, within uh, the environment and what it and what and what its relation is with the environment and how we should think about uh, the, the the environmental questions and of course we have the the pandemic uh, but uh, lurking behind that is the whole kind of question of climate change and 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 here too uh, this is a, there's a way it seems to me with a you know starting from that diagram and then recognizing that that, that actually it's only a, a a schematic surface representation of a much more complicated uh, 
thing that we can then start to think about more clearly about the relationship between uh, the, the, the the question of nature, the destruction of of, of certain natural uh, features, and the, the 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 what what how we how we might uh, try to orchestrate uh, the flow of value within that whole system in such a way as to be more benign in terms of its uh, offshoots in relationship to to uh, nature and to to culture. Now, I, I, you know, I often find myself uh, somewhat criticised because I, I tend to draw attention to Marx's phraseology in the Grundrisse, where he talks about the free gifts of nature and the free gifts of human culture. Now, I don't think uh, that, that these should be thought of as free gifts in the sense that they can be used any way you want, uh, but uh, I think Marx's point is that actually to the degree that capital does not have to take any cognizance of the environmental effects that may come from that circulatory process, uh, it treats uh, nature as in terms of free gifts. And there's a language in Marx's own thinking uh, here in the Grundry, so which is a little bit disturbing sometimes because it sounds like he's really talking about the domination of nature. Uh, which, of course, many people would now regard as a very bad thing, but being locked down here with a virus and around, I, I actually would like a little domination of nature. Uh, and, and in fact, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to orchestrate everything possible to dominate this particular virus. And we've done the same. And I think one of humanity's big uh, achievements for itself was the elimination of smallpox and, and so on. So. If, if you take this whole kind of process that's going on in the, in the Grundrisse in this relational way, in terms of relationalities and of different circulatory processes operating within the totality, you start to have an idea about how to think about the economy within a, with a different perspective uh, than a sort of rather mechanical way in which conventional economics looks at it or conventional sociology tends to look at it. It's a much richer way, and of course it's a moving, motional motion uh, geared way. And so what I get out of it this time is, uh, as I said, is, is, is more of a, a kind of a notion that uh, uh, to think of the different circulatory processes which are embedded within uh, the totality of a capitalist system. So, okay, I'm gonna uh, uh, stop at this point and try and uh, get you to sort of talk a little bit about some of your reactions. I have, like I say, I've got some particular issues that, that, that I think I've covered some of them uh, in what I'm saying, but let's see what uh, we can find. Oh, okay, I see people coming up. Okay. Hello? Hello? Hi, uh, I'll get us started. Um, well, first, just thanks so much for this course. This was, uh, I think, the, um, the regular practice uh, in the in the past couple of months has been a real lifeline. Um, so uh, I'm I'm really grateful, and I'm sure many other people are as well. So I uh, wanted to ask, um, yeah, thank you. I wanted to ask one. I mean, there's there's many things I'd like to ask. I'll just just to start us off. You know, the point you were raising about um, the uh, attention to the 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 different circuits and um, the attentiveness to where the crisis breaks out, um, where, you know, where, where there are blocks in circulation 
and um, the realization of capital. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts, maybe if we use 2008 and the current crisis as models, or to speak more broadly, um, lessons you can take from Marx about um, you know, what, how we take that information in order to understand um, opportunities for, uh, for working class organization and working class struggle. I don't know if that's a clear question. Well, yeah, well, there, there are two parts to that. One is, um, you know, if, if, if there is a, a crisis in the financial system, for example, uh, and what we'll often find in, in, in that is that the, the crisis in the financial system is partly uh, uh, um, uh, sort of for technical, technical reasons, there will be blockages within the system. There's not enough liquidity or liquidity is being cut or something of that kind. So you can get a crisis which to some degree can be uh, manufactured by one faction, faction of capital. Uh, to uh, engage in predatory practices against another. For instance, I think the, the, the crisis in uh, East and Southeast Asia in 1997-98 was a crisis which was manufactured by financial institutions to cut the liquidity so that many firms in the production sector had to go out of business and then they could be bought up uh, by uh, financial institutions, and when things recovered, they could be sold back at a huge profit. So this was a, this was a, a, a manipulation, if you like, which was occurring within that sphere. And, of course, the collateral damage was that a lot of uh, working people got uh, unemployed because if a firm went bankrupt, they had to lay off their workers, and that then kind of... Uh, so... so so, but in a, in a sense, it was not it was not a direct attack upon work, the working class. It had a, the working working population was a collateral uh, damage of uh, of, of uh, the, the, the the situation. Um, so th this sort of thing uh, is often uh, happening uh, within the capitalist system, and the idea that that. Uh, all of the fights are going to be between capital and labor. Well, uh, if you look at uh, some of the fights going on over uh, the opioid uh, epidemics uh, and, and uh, the role of big pharma in, in extracting vast amounts of money from, from a victimized population, uh, you know, this is, not, this is not your classic capital versus labor uh, struggle. So one of the things that comes out of this is that each one of these circuits has a very particular kind of class configuration and social configuration. Uh, and that would mean that, that we can't cram all of it into a traditional kind of view of you know, workers versus capitalist corporations. It's got, and so that's why I tend to want to talk about the broad panoply of anti-capitalist struggle, because I think the struggle over what's going on with the you know pharmaceuticals and big pharma and all of that in the country all of that is 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 a significant form of anti-capitalist struggle but it doesn't call forth you know a trade union and 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 uh, a sort of a, a socialist form of uh, of of organizing it it's likely to do something else 
Now, right now, we have a situation where we've got the virus, which is a kind of a... a it's, it's a very specific, uh, but again, the, uh, who's the collateral damage in, in all of this? Uh, and I think it has a class content, and, 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 but it's not the t traditional class content. And who is the enemy? Well, the enemy is the virus, but at the same time, it's also the capitalist class that's organized the capitalist state in such a way that it cannot deliver decent security to the mass of the population. So there's, again, there's a, there's a different... Uh, 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 social component to the anti-capitalist struggle in that case. So I'm, I, I would want to look uh, as far as possible at the general field of anti-capitalist struggle and to say, look, the struggles that are going on around, uh, you, know, you know, the exploitation of uh, Amazon workers right now and the, uh, and the struggles that are going on over rental extraction so that we're beginning to see the kind of the emergence of rent strikes and things of that kind, that all of this is, a, is in the field of anti-capitalist struggle and we should want to organize and think about it. Uh, but we have to think about it in terms of where it's located within the, the totality that we're, we're looking at uh, in order to establish what our alliances might be with people who are struggling elsewhere within, within the system. My own sense of things was I was always, uh, you know, before this uh, virus struck, I, I, it seemed to me that the whole kind of structure of uh, capitalist money making was uh, uh, was extremely fragile and and and, and uh, was could easily be broken. And so it didn't surprise me at all when uh, the virus came. But the virus, of course, is uh, uh, an ex, and it's not exactly an external invader because. The, you know, the origins of the virus are almost certainly uh, caught up with environmental transformations, and uh, which are partly due to capitalist reorganization of the interior space of um, much of East and Southeast Asia, where it seems that uh, several of these uh, viruses are, are coming from these kinds. But if you know that, then you obviously have to organize society to protect against, uh, against their uh, against them. So I, 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 my, my, my feeling, my feeling is that that it, you know, we we need we need to think about the the, the general field of anti-capitalist struggle, uh, and and to recognise the that that all of us are connected in in one way or other to different parts of this of this struggle, and it's all those different parts which need. Uh, with, with, of course, right now, a particular part, which is right at the center of uh, uh, the difficulties. Anybody else want to chip in? Uh -huh. uh, hi. Uh, thank you for these classes. This is really like, it's a, such an important part of my life these past, past two uh, months. Uh, and I was uh, thinking about your, uh, you know, in one of the classes, you had uh, asked the question, what is the, uh, is, is capital a civilizational force? What is the uh, civilizational force of, or civilizing force of uh, capital? And I was thinking whether uh, you, we should think about that in, in this context, in, in the context of, uh, COVID-19 and the, the very fact that, you know, that that something that is external to the market 
can stop the economy is isn't isn't it doesn't it have some uh, consequence to that question yeah uh, yeah no it has a uh, huge consequence but um it's interesting uh that on the one hand you can say it is external to the market but it's not external to the totality of the system right and there is of course a, a strong debate going on as to exactly how to understand uh these non-market aspects of uh uh social and uh biological configurations uh and and how 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 to think about uh, uh management of them um and and this is a this is a difficult question because when you say management of them uh a lot of people will kind of say well the issue for instance over the environmental i mean the the language on environmental and, and nature in in uh, the grundrisse and it's it is interesting to go back and just look at it uh from that perspective but the, that that language is is rather problematic it it it, it uh, really does often emphasize ideas of uh, domination of nature and so on but like i said you know there are some i some aspects of domination of nature that right now i don't think are bad idea at all and and actually i think if we run away from that then then we're we're likely to run into all kinds of uh, problems at some point or other we have to be able to control uh viruses and 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 uh be able be able to mobilize science and and technology in such a way as to as, as to be able to to live with them uh and at a certain point you know so so how 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 elements like that and how processes of that sort can be integrated into the understanding of a uh, capitalist society as a whole and the transition to a socialist society and what that might look like and how a socialist society might deal with questions of uh public health uh, and and the like i mean right now it's pretty clear that 40 years of neoliberalism have destroyed uh, the capacity of uh, states and so on to really guard against uh these sorts of things and uh, i think that i suspect that we're going to come out of this with a strong sentiment on the part of many populations that we have to reoccupy the state and get the state to actually do some uh, you know do the kind of work that needs to be done uh to protect us i mean this seems to me to be the thrust of some of the things that are beginning to be said uh, by the political class uh, in this uh in 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 this in this country but uh, there is i think again uh, there's this narrow very narrow conception of of capital which is it's just about limited by market exchange but it seems to me the broader conception of capitalism yeah. uh is uh, something that needs to be you know we really need to think about much more clearly So who else is out there? I got some uh have some comments from uh, Ten Joe, you want to come and talk? Um Hello professor. Hi. Uh thank you very much for uh for this class and I really appreciate just hanging out with you on Tuesday and listening to your lecture. Um 
And I guess something that something that's been really one of the comments that I sent to you is something on the consumption habits. I think something that really caught my attention throughout your lectures has always been around when you're just like in brief moments, we'll talk about consumption habits and we need to think about consumption time being shortened. Uh, and yeah, so I'm just really curious now that uh, yeah, I'm just it's just bugging me in a way that I don't quite understand how to work through yet. So I just kind of asked that in a way um, as a way to maybe rethink what we can do or think about in, in this COVID-19 situation. Well, I think, uh, you know, capital colonizes certain areas of uh, production. Uh, and over the last uh, 20 years, and particularly over the last 10 years, it's, it's really gone big time into systems of production where the consumption time is close to zero. Uh, and in other words, the, what capital is selling is not so much a thing as an experience. And that's what tourism is all about. And my favorite, you know, I often mention that the number of tourist visits rose from something like uh, 800 million to 1.4 billion in 10 years. And all of that took, of course, uh, airlines and all the rest of it. Now that's all crashed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's interesting that most of the, un you know, the instantaneous unemployment has been in the hospitality industries and in what you might call the, uh, the, the, the spectacle, uh, the production spectacle. Uh, with the exception of those things which are closed, and I use the Netflix example and th those sorts of things. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, subscriptions to Netflix when this whole thing hit went through the roof, apparently. Right. So, 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 but now, now, we, now, people get socialized into very fast turnover times of everything, and there is a sense in which if if that is what you know. Andre Gortz called compensatory consumerism, that it doesn't really work very well. And, I, and, I, and, it, and it is, I think, going to be fascinating to see to what degree people realize that they have been trapped in this cultural thing of chasing one experience after another experience and, 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 and hoping somehow or other they're going to be happy and get satisfaction out of it. And right now, you know, being locked down, you kind of realize you can't do all of those things. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to traveling around the world and flying airlines and that kind of stuff. And I haven't been doing that for a while. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, do I, would I really want to go back to doing all of that mm -hmm. uh, when, when this is all over? You know, I mean, I, I, and I, so I, I think that this is a moment of uh, where, where the, we, we can actually see that a culture that has been constructed uh, largely under the pressure of capitalist accumulation in fields where there's an instantaneous forms of consumption, mm -hmm. uh, capital accumulation of that sort may be less possible because the cultural configuration that had been constructed to support it has taken a severe knock and it's not clear that the cultural configuration uh, will actually be re-established. I mean, I really, I, I will be interesting to see, you know, uh, how fast people go back to doing everything they were doing before and whether they kind of go, well, no, I, I, I realize that, that somehow or other I was being super exploited at the point of consumption by, by 
consumerism that was not satisfying at all and was really featured by the perpetual stressful search for consumer happiness and conforming to some of the ads which you see on the uh, on, on 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 tv you know i mean i uh i i don't know if anybody's going to go going to go on a cruise liner for a while uh, for, for example so i think i think there's there's going to be some barriers there but i think also uh you know even beyond that i think there's going to be a, there could be some well well be some cultural shifts which are not going to be easily reversed mm-hmm. Yeah, some something I guess I'm also curious about is just there is a both highlighting the sense of infrastructure, right, or like uh, yeah. population that supports this sort of consumption habits that we're having, but at the same time, the increasing virtualization of all of our consumption practice, including this class, for example, um, alongside alongside Netflix, alongside sort of like takeout or food delivery services, um, and it. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just curious. Also, just like at what point do these two forms sort of like communicate with each other, or um, or is there, or does it look like it's a separation between both acknowledging frontline workers or delivery workers or the infrastructure that supports them, but then at the same time yearning for a instantaneous form of consumption patterns? And so, like right now at the moment, I I don't really. Maybe it's just just not being able to go out, or uh, but it feels to me two separate sort of forces, and but two parts of the same problem. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know how. You know, I really have. You know, I have a crystal ball to say what would happen. I do know several people who, for example, have been realizing that they quite enjoy cooking, <laughs> and and uh, food. I mean, when I. For much of my life, uh, I would always uh, cook at home, you know, and 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 it's only just recently that I've taken to eating out more and more, and even taking even takeout. And now I kind of going, I don't know. I think it's quite fun to 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 get back and cook some things. And and so you know, if if you can, if people get pleasure as much pleasure out of cooking as they do out of other things, then they may just go back to doing that. And in which case, there's not going to be the business there for the restaurants. And it, you know, I mean, it's it's again, these are these are cultural shifts, and how deep they may go, and whether how far they will spread, who knows? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very uncertain uh, situation. I just I just do have a feeling that there there are going to be some long term shifts and who knows exactly what they are. Right. Thank you, Professor. Someone who else uh, can I call on? Hi, Professor. I just wanted to uh, share one of my takeaways from the course that I really appreciated. Uh, I, I found your discussion today and throughout the semester of uh, the way Marx talks about the domination of nature very interesting. And I also find it a nice uh, kind of adjunct of the way that he talks about the nature of capital. Yeah. And I, I really just think I learned a lot through reading this and you know thinking about it with you this semester on that second part of the nature of capital as it relates to the domination of nature and the ways in which 
you know, capital and we'll have to find new ways to use nature uh, and we'll have to find use in forms of nature that it didn't use before. Uh, I'm just finding that really productive to think with. So I wanted to thank you. Okay. No, I think that's a very interesting. We, we, we didn't really highlight that too much in the Grundrisse, but it's, if you, if you ever get back to reading through it again, it's a good idea to kind of, you know, watch out for those passages where Mark's, you know, it's very often a throwaway sentence here or there and, you know, and try and pin it together to see what, uh, what his perspective really is. Okay, how about me calling on somebody then? Uh, Corinna Blaylock, you want to come on? So I have one question that came up for me sort of, um, I've loved the class and this has been a sort of, um, as everyone, echoing everyone who said that it's been a really sort of uh, amazing constant over the last few months. Um, but one thing I've been really taken with is the idea of trying to think, I think the way I originally learned Marx was really this emphasis on production. Um, and alongside this, I've been reading a lot of feminist theory, looking at uh, social reproduction. Yeah. And I was interested in the way in which if we take the emphasis and like how it, it how that fits into your paradigm. And cause oftentimes we talked about sort of what I would sort of understand is social reproduction in terms of consumption. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see social reproduction sort of fitting into all of this, if we sort of de-emphasize the production aspect. Well, I think one of the things uh, I, I always try to emphasize when I think about any one of these moments is that each one of these moments is what Marx, the, the language he uses is it's autonomous and independent, but subsumed within the overall logic of the totality. And I think the social reproduction, this is a very good way to think of it. I mean, a lot of things are going on in terms of social reproduction, uh, which are not determined by, you know, what's going on in production or consumerism or anything else. So there's a, a lot of independent uh, transformations going on uh, in social reproduction, which uh, of course, some of which is around questions of re, you know, redefinition of gender roles and, uh, and definitions of sexuality and all the rest of it. Uh, but, but at the same time, while all of that's going on, uh, the household is still a primary point of consumption and people learn their consumer habits very much from being embedded in the household. And now nobody sits down and says, okay, I'm going to train my kids how to consume. Uh, but in practice, uh, a lot of what goes on in, in the household is, is, is about uh, kids being socialized into being good consumers. And, and the kids themselves have something to say about this. I mean, you know, they, they want toys for Christmas and they want all this sort of thing. But capital is very cognizant of this and is really trying to, uh, you know, get the, get the kids at a very early age uh, to be uh, wonderful little consumers. Uh, and, and, uh, and they are a very important uh, consumer force in society. society. I'm just using the kids because so and, and, and women, women too. But also, of course, uh, the 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 household is is a site of uh, uh, of education into uh, you know 
uh, induction into the labor force. And I think that uh, this means the stuff about, you know, you're not only educating people to be consumers, you're also in, in educating them to be uh, producers. And then the question arises, what kind of producers are they going to be? And I was always very, uh, you know, sort of, so, so, sort of taken with uh, uh, some of the literature about uh, how hidden class uh, uh, configurations were built in at a very early age through structures and processes of social reproduction because we're not only dealing with households, we're also dealing with uh, educational institutions and we're dealing with neighbourhood uh, configurations of uh, understanding and peer group pressures and all the rest of it. So so I think that that uh, certainly the, 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 the social reproduction is, is, a, is a very vibrant uh, sphere of, uh, uh, of investigation right now and some very, very good literature coming, coming out uh, in, this, in this area, which, which acknowledges that the social reproduction is embedded in the overall structure, uh, but at the same time is kind of saying, well, what's happening in social reproduction is also transforming throughout the whole structure because you can't, transform all of the household relations without transforming some of the practices of realization, some of the practices of distribution and the like. So, uh, I mean, this is a, this is a fantastic uh, area of inquiry now. And a lot, like I say, there's a lot of very good literature on how to understand uh, the theories of social reproduction. Now there's a lot of controversy and uh, which, you know, which is, which is, which is healthy. And of course, uh, in my little diagram, one of the things I do is to kind of say, well, this also involves uh, a lot of uh, cultural features which are coming out of the, the cultural structures which exist in, in contemporary societies and how those cultures uh, are, are drawn upon and utilized in, 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 in certain, certain ways. So the sphere of social reproduction is... Uh, uh, I think uh, fascinating, fascinating one to, to to look at right now. And like I say, there's some fantastic uh, literature on it, which uh, I, I found great to 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 read and look at. Have you worked on this, Sam? Oh, me? Yes. Yeah. So I'm uh, something I've read a lot, um, but I we're trying to put together something right now on. Uh, law, political economy, and social reproduction. And so it's been sort of ever present in trying to think through sort of uh, how these literatures fit together and how we might sort of not always treat them separately, but actually put them in dialogue with one another. Yeah, no, that's great if you can do that. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, good luck with that. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, so you said law and as well? Law and political economy, um, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're trying to think them together. Law has not really wrestled with many of these issues over the years at all. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how we might add that back in as well. Yeah, great. It's fantastic. I'd love to see what you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to share. <laughs> okay, who else wants to talk? Laura Rivas, you want to talk? 
Um, hi, Professor Harvey. Um, first, I'll echo the feeling of my colleagues and thank you for a wonderful course. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Um, and the thing that stuck with me, although I'm sure there's probably much that I, that I still don't um, don't grasp as well, but um, the thing that stuck with me was our conversation about the circulation of fixed capital, specifically the enigma behind um, the validity of the value theory with the increase of social and technical knowledge that leads to investing in fixed over variable capital. It, it, yeah. it left me thinking about how to increase wealth and that idea as, as that idea of disposable time without expanding the industrial reserve army. Um, that is like, um, how can labor organize against it if the very disruption of the organic composition of capital in such a way disempowers the position of the worker um, and renders them um, even more disposable within the power dynamics of, of, of capital? I know that, that there were also... Um, some sections in which that might have been um, where, where Marx maybe goes against that. And, and I remember you redirected us to a quote that I think when, when we were discussing that, that I think it was, um, I wrote it in my reflection, but I don't have it in front of me, but I, in the earlier part of the book where, um, where that shift might be accompanied also by. Yeah, yeah, I know. What, I know what you're talking about. It's the uh, equalization of the rate of profit, which leads to transfers of value from labor-intensive to capital-intensive sectors. Right, right, and how there are sectors then that sort of right. subsidize um, yeah. the ones that become um, um, less dependable on on, on labor. Yeah, see, I, I mean, look, I, I don't know how to parse this properly. I mean, I, it's not as if I you know, have some key insight that unlocks it. But one, one of the things that occurred to me, because uh, several people raised this in, in writing questions, one of the things that occurred to me was this, that, yeah, if uh, the value theory is destroyed by all of this investment uh, in you know, science and technology embedded in, in fixed capital. Uh, if that's the case, then actually you've destroyed the basis of capitalist class, class power. Because it's not only have you destroyed the value theory, which is, which is but, but who, who, who produces the value is, is, is the worker, but who appropriates it is capital. And if there's no value, then the, the, the reproduction of the capitalist class is threatened. Okay. Now, if that's the case, then it would say that at the same time as capital is going to be pouring money into fixed capital formation and then science and technology and all the rest of it, it's going to be desperate to find other ways to reproduce class power. And this is where uh, one of those things that comes up in the section on the falling rate of profit comes significant because Marx then kind of says, well, this can be counteracted by the development of new sectors of production, which are labor intensive. Uh, and uh, then you kind of say to yourself, well, okay, 
capital is investing in the fixed capital and all of this, and it's automating and it's doing all these kinds of things, and it's doing that in the auto industry. But at the same time, it's investing like crazy in uh, uh, tourism, which is which is labor intensive, right? So, so in fact, one of the things it's going to be doing all of the time that it's on the one hand pursuing this kind of stuff with fixed capital, it's also going to be cultivating all sorts of sectors uh, which are labor intensive because it needs that in order to reproduce its power. And of course, its power is partly located in these high-tech sectors because that's where all of the, the, the appropriation uh, can go on. And that appropriation which goes on there is going to be subsidized by all of this other stuff, which is the I don't, I don't know, restaurant workers. Uh, there are, I don't know, 20 million restaurant workers in this country. And that, again, is connected to this cultural shift of eating out and eating around, you know. So it, 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 so it, it would seem to me that, that when you start to think about capital flow and say, where do capitalists invest? Well, they invest in the high-tech stuff but they're also going to invest in uh, the hospitality industries uh, and the like, which, as I say, are labor intensive. Uh, and it's going to want to have uh, low wage labor there uh, because also there is this uh, amusing thing which several people have also commented on that every capitalist wants uh, their, uh, their labor to live on the minimum wage at the same time as they hope that their competitors will pay maximum wage to provide a market for the for the for their commodities so so if you look on on that that uh discussion which marx launches about the impact upon the value theory uh of uh, uh the circulation of uh, fixed capital with science and technology if you look on that as somehow or other embedded in the whole system and systemically at the same time leading to a compensatory movement uh, to explore labor intensive sectors and to build labor intensive sectors uh, as uh, the place where a lot of value can be created, very little will be appropriated uh, and, and a lot of transfer will go to the capital intensive sectors, which then, um, maybe I should talk a little bit about how that happens. Marx is Marx's is, um, uh, fable, if you want to call it that, is that each capitalist produces value according to the labor they employ. Uh, that value goes into a total pot of value worldwide. And then people draw upon that total pot of value according to the capital they advance which means that the labor-intensive sectors are going to put much more value into the pot than, is, uh, than, they, than they, take, they take out, and uh, the capital-intensive will, will take a lot more out than they put in. So that's, that's the sort of fiction that Marx builds and says, well, it's not as if uh, any particular capitalist will get the value or the surplus value they produce, they don't get it at all. It just flows through the market system into this huge part of uh, global value and surplus value, which is then uh, divided amongst the capitalists according to capital intensity rules. So that's how that system works. 
But I, but I, when when I when I read that this time, I, I noticed it says on the one hand, okay, uh, this destroys labor as a basis and it becomes a miserable and, and, and you know the value theory provides a miserable basis for the for, for the, so there's all of that sort of language, but then it says. But capital at the same time wants to preserve the value theory. And you kind of go, why, why do they want to, why does capitalists want, want to preserve the value theory? And the answer is, as I mentioned earlier, that the value theory is not really a theory of price. It's about a theory of the reproduction of the class power of capital. Mm. Uh, which is why I don't like this idea that somehow or other the socialists should take over the value theory. <laughs> because, <laughs> you, you know, so anyway, but that's how I look at it this time. Like I say, probably next year I'll have a different interpretation of it. But I think I think that that makes sort of sense to me right now. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Professor. That was really helpful. Okay, who else is? Uh... So how many people want to read the book again? Hey, David, um, just wanted to say thank you. Um, your cactus is uh, is looking nice there. It's nice. Yeah, to, isn't it great? It's, uh, it comes from Oaxaca. Uh, I, I was in Oaxaca when this, uh, when this crisis started, a pandemic escalated in March in the Americas. Uh, 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 wow. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, my son lives in Oaxaca, so. Mm. Uh, yeah, magical place. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Um, but the, to answer your question, um, it was a tough read. I don't know if I'd like run to read it again. You know, I feel grateful to have your your uh, interpretation of it, you know, throughout. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I got something to, to say about that. The first time I read Capital, you know, to be honest, I didn't understand what the fuck was going on. And... It was only the second time through that I really actually started to think it was interesting. And it was uh, about the fourth or fifth time through that I really started to enjoy it. <laughs> and I have to say that, that this is the, I, I don't know how many times like I started out by saying I've been through the grid research, but I really did enjoy it this time. It was, it was, re it was really great fun. For me to do, and uh, it wasn't as if uh, it, it was, you know. I, I really look forward to the sessions. I mean, I get a little kind of nervous about what the hell do I say about this and how do I say it, you know. But but uh, I actually find it a, you know, and, and this is true of, of, of capital too. That the the more you kind of read read it, but having got through it, I think that you might find it interesting to sort of take certain parts of it and sort of say, you know, that part was kind of interesting. I started to, you know, I started to poke out. So I will read that bit again. Uh, and, and I think you could do that with uh, the, the Grundry, sir. And it's, and it's fun to just sort of open it up at a page, read, read a little bit, and think about, oh, what does that mean? And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's, and it's not, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really strange because, in academia and elsewhere, uh, Marx is is depicted as such a dogmatic writer, and you kind of go, he's not dogmatic at all. <laughs> he's, he's constantly questioning things, opening things up, and then saying, "Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Maybe I should do this instead." 
this wonderful moment in the Grundrisse where he says, oh, this whole thing is too Hegelian, I better do it all over again, get the Hegel out of it. Uh, I, I, so I, I, I think it, it, it does lend itself to kind of a, uh, an open discussion and open reading. And, I, I, and in some ways, I think Grundrisse is one of my, my, my favourite Marx books precisely because it does that. I mean, some of the other stuff is very rigorously set up. I mean, having said that, I, I do recognize that there are long passages in the Grundrisse, which are, you know, as far as I'm concerned, incredibly boring and not, not, not exciting at all. So you, you've got to take the, the, the wheat with the chaff on that, on that one. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I appreciate that. I think I will just follow those, those uh, puzzle pieces, I guess. Uh. Um, that stand out. Yeah, yeah. And have fun with them, you know. Yeah, and I feel that way. I, I'm like rereading the Tao Te Ching, and oh. I, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a little more sparse than the Grundis. But it, um, yeah, the first time I read it maybe a decade ago, I was just like, oh, these are, I just like completely, just completely went over my head, you know, or I just, I thought they were just poems, and I was like, these aren't as nice as Tonka poems or something, but but yeah, now it's it's hitting. So, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, it seems to me like uh, we're. Uh, anybody else want any more comment? So, okay, maybe we should uh, wind it up here, and uh, I'll go off and do some cooking. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Well, thank you all, and I I really appreciate the fact that you uh, took this and took it seriously, and I hope you had some fun with it too.